These niggas are lying to you guys. They are lying. They're not good at their jobs. They're not good at their jobs. They're not good at their jobs. And they're reaffirming white ideas about blackness and trying to tell us it's a revolution. Kiss my black ass. That's what I would say to all of them. You can come at me. Like, really, have fun with that. I can actually fight, unlike a lot of other people I know. Hi, I'm Eric. And this is For Colored Nerds, the weekly show where we peel back the layers of black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. This week, I got to chat with Vulture film and TV critic Angelica Jade Bastian. Angelica's written some of the most researched, critical, fun, and some would say divisive reviews of the films featuring black characters and stories that we have all been obsessing over. We invited her to the studio to talk about the challenges of critiquing black content on the internet what's missing from the movies we love, and we take a wonderfully spicy detour into the latest season of the FX hit show Atlanta. You don't want to miss that, and you don't want to miss this interview. We let it rip. More with myself and Angelica after this break. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chief antagonist to MCU Twitter. Oh, my God. <laughs> Angelica Jade Bassia. No, seriously, you're my favorite critic. Welcome to For Colored Nerds. How are you doing today? You know what, man? These MCU movies, I'm like, I don't even, they take up such little brain space in my mind as a critic. Yeah. But the way people talk about me, they're like, wow, you really be hating shit, Angelica. And I'm like... No, actually, I, I love film. I'm sorry, yeah. most things are just mediocre. Hey, so it's funny because, like, you, as I mentioned, you're one of my favorite critics, like favorite, favorite film critics. Aww, and thank you. I also am a pretty big diehard MCU fan. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely, absolutely. And for what's worth, I read all of them. And the thing that I often have to admit is that you are right. <laughs> like, about 99% of the time, in terms of, like, how you are assessing the film— I think what maybe people get stuck on is, like, you can still like something that maybe is constructed imperfectly. I was going to say terribly, but sure, imperfectly <laughs> sounds okay. I like a lot of movies that are trash, but yeah. I will say, this is trash. It's made terribly, but there's it hits a pleasure center. And that's, exactly. like, totally okay, but it's, like, my job uh, to discuss cinematography, acting, shot setups, framing, yeah. All the things that go into making a film. Yes. And if they're not good, they're not good. But when people call me pretentious, I have to laugh. Like, because I gave Michael Bay's most recent film, Ambulance, a very high-minded, beloved <laughs> review. Because it was fun as shit. It's so dumb. But it's, yeah. like, really just well-made action. And also, I love a movie where I can be like, wow, everyone involved in this movie dove into a mountain of cocaine before every <laughs> single scene. And I was like, that's Absolutely. beautiful. That's Especially beautiful. Jake Gyllenhaal. If you haven't seen the movie Ambulance, it's pretty good. It's a fun ride. It's ridiculous. Oh, it's so dumb. Like, it is the dumbest thing I have seen in a very long time. But Jake Gyllenhaal, him screaming about his cashmere sweater was like, <laughs> I was like, you know what? This is cinema. Michael Bay, an tour of our time. <laughs> You know, I want to say just like whether you're happy or whether you're pissed, I typically always hear where you're coming from. And your reviews are so layered and they clearly come from such a place of like deep passion and knowledge, which like makes me wonder to start. Where did your love for film and film criticism begin? You know, I had a very different road to this 
profession than I think a lot of other critics because they grew up like, I loved film and I made little films with my dad on some Super 8 camera or whatever the hell they were doing. (laughs) And for me, I have always loved pop culture, but I never thought of myself as, oh, I love film. If someone asked Mm -hmm. me about myself when I was a kid, I wouldn't be like, oh yeah, I love film. For me, it was more like, I love storytelling. Mm -hmm. That is what I love. I love the stories we tell ourselves to get through the day. I love narrative construction. I love mythology. But it took me going to an art high school in Miami, Florida, where I grew up. And you basically, you had your usual school day, right? All Mm. the usual bullshit you have to deal with. Then on top of that, you have an art history class, a drawing Mm. class, and a major, basically. They called it a strand. Mm -hmm. And one of them was film. And I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Graphic design wasn't hidden. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, I like movies. Sure, I'll do this. And then in the class, I saw like, in the first like week or so, Mr. Pike was my teacher. Mm. I remember him very clearly. He showed us a few classic Hollywood films I had never seen before, including To Have and Have Not with Humphrey mm. Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Ernest Hemingway, soldier of fortune, who can always be found where adventure beckons, now takes you to the danger zone of the Mid-Atlantic. The Third Man, which is Mm. an amazing film, and The Sting with Robert Mm. Redford and my king, Paul Newman, hottest white man to ever live in Hollywood. (laughs) Paul Newman is Henry Gondorf. There wasn't a con he couldn't run, and there wasn't a sucker he couldn't gaff. Robert Redford is Johnny Hooker, a young grifter. I'm like, most of these white men are like, I pass him on the street in Chicago, I wouldn't notice them. Paul Newman, <laughs> I would notice. For as far as Robert Redford was my guy growing up. So the sting was like <laughs> on my list. But yeah, keep going. I love the sting. It's just a fun movie and it just really sparked what would become now a lifelong obsession with learning and studying film. I think of myself, and this is going to sound pretentious, I consider myself a scholar of film. And I think Mm -hmm. a problem with criticism is not enough scholars there, not enough, you know, studying the form, in my opinion. That really got me started. And then I went to college for screenwriting, of all things, Mm -hmm. and took a smattering of film criticism classes And the ones that really stuck out to me and really set me on this path were the ones I took with a teacher named Jeffrey John Smith when I came up to Chicago and went to school here, another art school. I don't know why I was doing that to myself. (laughs) Class called Star as Auteur on Cary Grant, Mm. Star as Auteur on Betty Davis, and a Mm. whole entire class dedicated to the film Gone with the Wind. So, wow, which is... Yeah, Very interesting as a black person like, being in that class. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a semester. I would have go through it. Oh, yeah. it was. So, but I learned so much and it sparked an interest. And then, you know, I get out of college and I'm like, I don't want to do screenwriting. I want more control over my career than you get as a screenwriter. That doesn't feed me in the way I need to be fed. And so I fucked around for a few years um, working odd jobs until I started, you know, writing on the side and... Mm-hmm then freelancing full-time, and then now I've been on staff with Vulture since 2017. Wow, yeah. So, like, I could not have you, of all critics on the show, and not have a bit of the, like, Red Tails argument that I think everybody, like, basically tries to, like, engage you in on Twitter. You know, that age-old question, do we have to love every single Black movie so that they will continue to make any Black movies? Uh... Yeah, so you seem like you were going to or the side that I, I feel a million times. I think we both know the answer is no. But like, and we're also just at a point where there's literally never been more black there's TV a lot. or film. There's a lot of stuff available. But I guess I'm curious, like, why you think it's so hard to move on from this argument? And like, how does its seemingly eternal presence, like, affect your work as a critic? That is a very heavy question. And you know what? I'm going to get a little spicy. Let's do it. So my whole thing is, no, we do not have to love every Black film. And if you are doing that, you're actually being condescending to artists by just accepting trash. Also, my, my question to people is, you know there's Black film made outside of Hollywood, outside Mm. of America that you could support that's really amazing Mm. and great. And Mm. I don't know, watch Air Conditioner, watch Atlantiques. Like, there's a a lot of 
amazing cinema with black people out, especially from the continent of Africa. Yeah. Like, and then my question to people who are like, well, we have to support or Hollywood's never going to be making stuff again. First of all, they're not because they realize, oh, our bottom line has been struggling. We're in a very weird spot right now with pop culture, specifically film. So, of course, they're giving Negro stuff now because they're like, oh, they always no, they literally always turn to us when they're struggling. Think of yeah. the black exploitation era. There's a yeah. very uh, sure boom and bust cycle in black representation that you can track throughout the entirety of film in America from yeah. silent period onward. Right. Exactly. I think about UPN. UP, uh, UPN. Remember UPN? What a time. Mm. We were so lucky growing <laughs> up. And then it got bad. Yeah, it's like that time. I see, but we were eight years in power or something like that. Like we had, whatever years we had UPN, we, we were that many years in power. And then they and took then, over. But my question to people who bring that up is, why are you so hungry for white acceptance from Hollywood? Why do you think an industry that is basically an arm of propaganda for our government, which, surprise, does not give a shit about us, why would you think they would holistically show the beauty and breadth of blackness? Hmm. Why are you so hungry for them to do that? Why are you so hungry for that seat at the table instead of burning it down? I don't know. Man. That's, that's just, think about it. I, I'm curious, like, do you feel like in your writing you're responding to any of that? Or, like, does that, does that affect any of your pursuit with trying to, like, review a film? For me, I... It's a really weird struggle, I think, as a critic, because criticism at its best is a conversation with the audience, in my opinion. Yeah. You're shepherding the audience to look at things in new ways and consider historical connections. I think of critics as a part of the historical record, in a way. Mm -hmm. I think for me, when I've been stopped, let's say, from writing something, it's more like, okay, I've done too many negative reviews on Black people shit, for a minute, mm -hmm. I need to take a break because it's going to look some sort of way. Not because I yeah. don't want to write about it, but I think you need balance in your career. I don't want everyone to look at me and be like, oh, yeah, she's just a hater. All she does is write negative reviews. You, you have to mix it up. So, yeah. you know, that's a struggle that is sometimes at the back of my head. But for me, I just let my passion and desires guide me and hope that I have honest-ass friends in my corner who will call <laughs> me out like, girl, you... Don't do this. And thankfully, I do have really good friends who, who know to... I've never had a friend be like, yeah, Angelica, you shouldn't have done that. But mm -hmm. it's good to have guardrails of specifically black and brown friends who will be like, yeah, you hit it. Fuck them haters or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I try not to let the voice of audiences get into my head when I'm writing. A mm -hmm. uh, mentor told me when I was in college a very long time ago, you can't control the echoes. Listen to your own voice. Woo. And I've wow. held on to that for a very long time. I let people take my work whatever way they want to take it. That is up to people. That is all a part of being a creative person. You let stuff out into the world, and then people will take it whichever direction they want to take it. And I just let my work speak for itself. Like, I try not to get into Twitter fights, especially mm -hmm. with these Marvel fans. They they are very yeah. intense. I made a slight joke about Mr. Christopher Evans and maybe his hairline or something like that. And <laughs> they got crazy. I was like, yeah. oh, my God. Like, this white man is not going to fuck you. So defending <laughs> him on the internet is not doing anything and also if the man has plugs that's fine let that's him have fine. plugs he paid for them that's it's okay fine. look we're all getting older and some of yeah. us are you know struggling with the hair stuff not me but you know my heart goes out to all those men there's a review that i feel like is a good example of kind of i think some of the reactions that you get that feels in this conversation mm -hmm. and it is your review of the uh 2021 reboot of Candyman. Oh, God. <laughs> so, look, the original Candyman obviously has this massive cult following. And for what it's worth, it's one of my actual, like, all-time favorite horror movies. Probably, like, might even be top five for me. I mean, Tony Todd. Tony Todd's performance. Oh, my and God. And Bernard Rose's direction and Clive yeah. Barker's whole sensibilities really work well. I think there's gristle to that film because I think sometimes we as Black people 
don't know how to reckon with quote unquote black art that may be created or have more white people involved behind the scenes. Mm. And I think Candyman is one of those like weird films that is really interesting to unpack. But sorry, continue. No, exactly. It, literally, that's ex- all the reasons why I'm really into it. But the the update, you know, as you noted in your review, it felt honestly bad and kind of boring at times. Or you reacquainted so many people with the word didactic. So I agreed for the most part with your review. But man, oh man, did Black Twitter disagree with you, at least on the day it came out. Yeah. When you review a film like Candyman, you know, and to be honest, I thought you actually went kind of easy on it compared to uh, Walter Chow. Walter is funny. And I don't think I went, I I have never in my life gone easy on anything. So let's, let's correct <laughs> I just the mean record. In compa- <laughs> I hear you. I respect, respect. I'm not trying to come for you. I'm just saying in comparison, Walter like eviscerated this He man. really oh, hated it. Oh my God. It. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, How are you hoping that Black readers engage this type of review? Ignoring the chatter that you definitely received, how are you kind of hoping people engage this? Same way I hope they engage with all my work, which is read it for what is on the page. Please do not project onto me whatever ideas you have about my Blackness. You're Mm. probably going to be wrong. I'm just saying people love to be like, oh, they're biracial. They're not really Black. And I'm like... Mm. That's very strange. I'm not biracial, so I don't know where you're getting that <laughs> Either from. Either way. Both my parents are Black. All my grandparents are Black. But exactly. what I hope for is that people read the work, thoroughly engage with it, whether they like it or not, agree with it or not. And I hope it sparks them to read and watch more voraciously and with more curiosity. That is mm. what I hope for. In that context, like, what's a Black horror film you wish people might have caught as opposed to that candy man because i i mean i was rooting for nia da costa i was too i really was i honestly i feel like my blame is not on nia with this i think there's a thing sort of happening in hollywood which is true of people beside putting aside race but i think it's especially true for directors of color where they have an indie film And then they're forced to, like, jump into, like, big budget shit that they're not Mm -hmm. prepared for. They have not developed their voice enough. It's definitely the industry utilizing their identity as a Mm -hmm. way to reaffirm their bottom line. And it's actually heartbreaking to see. But in terms of Black horror film, well, it hasn't come out yet. Nikyatu Jusu's Nanny is amazing. Mm -hmm. I really, really responded well to that film. I don't think it's perfect, but what it's doing with the grammar of film is far more interesting than what we're seeing now. I think a big problem where I'm coming up against as a critic is noticing that a lot of these filmmakers of color are not creating their own grammar. What they're doing is Mm. using the language that white auteurs have set for us as if that is the highest you can go with filmmaking. I want to see motherfuckers experiment. Where are these motherfuckers doing some Terrence Nance random acts of flyness shit? Mm. Like that show is amazing and it's so experimental with form and function and its cinematography and what we expect. That's what I'm hungry for from Black filmmakers, especially. You obviously like center and really look for a level of quality in terms of like how films treat the narratives of, I think, women overall, but especially Black women, Mm -hmm. I think, in your work. That feels like a through line. And a lot, for what it's worth, a lot of your fury feels like it's saved for those movies that really kind of fail them. Yeah. I think about Bad Hair, you know, where you seem a little irritated that, like, at the lack of empathy that Mm -hmm. the movie seemed to have for, you know, the Black women in the film. And it kind of used that to, like, justify, you know, all the terror that they received. Mm. I think about them. (laughs) <laughs> the Amazon show. One of, Lord. one of my best opening lines. I almost wish I saved it for something else, but it worked really <laughs> well for it. I actually have it right here. You said, in 2018, the artist Lorraine O'Grady said at a Brooklyn Museum book event, in the future, white supremacy will no longer need white people. That future is now. I, I am really proud of that review. I think it's very cutting. <laughs> it's amazing. But... These stories were from Black creators who somehow really felt like the work was actually advancing the stories of Black women. And I'm curious, like, how you experience these film narratives failing Black women today. And, like, do you think things have been... Like, because in their mind, these movies are a shift. 
Like, do you think things are actually? <laughs> Sorry, I can see. <laughs> Your face is amazing. These niggas are lying to you guys. They are lying. They're not good at their jobs. They're not good at their jobs. They're not good at their jobs. And they're reaffirming white ideas about blackness and trying to tell us it's a revolution. Kiss my black ass. That's what I would say to all of them. You can come at me. Like, really, have fun with that. I can actually fight, unlike a lot of other people I know. Because it's not like people aren't having these conversations Mm -hmm. after a lot of these like movies or shows come out. Is it an echo chamber that causes a lot of a lack of evolution in terms of how black women are treated? Like, yeah, I guess I'm curious, like where you feel like its root is from because you Mm. see so much of it. I mean, the root of it is white supremacy Mm. and the fact that white people control the levers of power in Hollywood. Yes, there's more black people we're seeing in front of the camera And slightly behind the camera, but in terms of, like, who's running studios, who's greenlighting what, I think Yatu posted on Twitter once, and I'm paraphrasing, it's not like the films you want to see by Black people aren't being pitched and, like, Mm -hmm. argued for in in these rooms. It's just they're not being greenlit. And so I think that's something to kind of keep in mind and something I try to remember. I'm like, yeah, I think a lot of these niggas aren't my kinfolk, in my opinion, but I don't blame them. I blame the structure we all have to move through, whether you're a critic writing about it or a filmmaker in the industry. It always comes down to the narrow ideas white people have about us. And I think there's Mm. Black people who feel like they can subvert things or, you know, like add some flavor to what we've seen before and that's enough. And I'm like... Y'all ain't subverting shit. Like, I'm sorry. Also, the filmmaking isn't there. That is a big problem for me. It's not just, oh, wow, the politics of them, for example, is a mess. Yeah, it's a mess and terrible. And it's like, do we really need this graphic rape scene, death of a baby flashback episode, which was directed by Denixa Bravo, who is a black woman. So we're complicit. Yeah, we are. And, you know, for me, my politics... And my love of film and what I believe its possibilities are prohibit me from lying. I'm not going to pretend something is good. Also, people have this very strange idea that art, like history and politics, progress in a straight line and that everything's Mm. always getting better than what came before. With Roe v. Wade and what we're seeing happening and everywhere from Palestine to the shores of Miami, L.A., New York, everywhere in this country, I mean, across the globe, we should all kind of come to terms with the fact that that's not true. Yeah, things are regressing. Things yeah. are not it good. Like Shit, the vibes are bleak. It's bad out there. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> it's like art does not progress in a straight line like that. Like, that's just not how it is. Just because your black ass has access to better equipment than, say, Bill Gunn, who made Ganja and Hess... His ass bodies all of you guys. Like, mm, it's sad. About it. What are the things recently, you mentioned uh, Nanny. Mm-hmm. Like, what are the other things that are getting at this kind of deeper exploration of Blackness or that are kind of doing some of the work of kind of interrogating, you know, narratives beyond what white development executives would provide for us? I think one of my favorite things that has come out in the last few years, and even though, let me preface this by saying, even though I am also a TV critic, I think most people know film is where the meat of it really lies for me, but Mm -hmm. um, The Underground Railroad, Barry Jenkins' series, yes, the craft is there. The craft is there. I mean, what's interesting about Barry Jenkins and The Underground Railroad specifically is you can tell he's taking cues, especially with the very languid tracking shots and very fluid camera movements. He's taking cues from filmmakers who admittedly are white, John Renoir and Max Ophels, who I'm big fans of. But he's also taking shit from filmmakers of color. You can see other inspirations there. And I think always whenever I watch him of like Wong Kar Wai, for example. And... Mm. The beauty of that show is its depth, its layers, how it is not creating a very neat narrative. And I think it's relationship to the body. What it means to exist in a black body as a human being is very fascinating. 
some of its most harrowing yeah. moments are told to us. We're not seeing them, which I think is a very mm. smart choice because I think there is no way, in my opinion, for a film or TV show to fully show the horror, basically, of slavery yeah. without tripping into being trauma porn because the yeah. reality of that existence is harrowing. So I think Barry yeah. Jenkins and his collaborators, including the composer, Nicholas Brattel, uh, yeah. James Laxon, the cinematographer, they just know what the fuck they are doing. And they're creating yeah. a character in Korra who mm-hmm. is so complex and so fascinating and so resistant to to just loving her easily. She's like an enigma that you slowly understand more and more of. It was funny because I praised the show above and beyond. Like, I am up, still very obsessed yeah. with it. But I did say that I felt like Cora as a character is all trauma response. But that wasn't an insult. That was like, I actually think that's interesting and makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it was a tr- it was a very traumatic experience. Like, her life, her life was yeah. horrifying, you know, yeah. in many respects. That show, I agree, really just kind of like took my breath away. It was an experience I haven't had, to your point. So often when the violence from, you know, that period is rendered, there's a horror that you experience that you're like, this is too much. And I think when I was watching the show, there were points that were really, really intense, but they were rendered with such Mm -hmm. care that I was able to not necessarily distance myself from what they were experiencing, but understand more of the context. Yeah. I think I, you can be so blinded by the horror that you can't get the additional context exactly. that they're trying to provide. And I think you, as you mentioned, like all the different components, the cinematography, the, you know, the music, Nicholas Patel, amazing so score, good. all those things yeah. come together to really guide you in terms of how to feel through this mm-hmm. type of experience. Mm-hmm. Up next, Angelica and I dive into the show everyone has been arguing about recently. There's another show that is very different and maybe tries the hardest to feel like a deeper exploration of Blackness. Mm. That show, for me, at least right now, is Atlanta. Let me drink some of my kombucha. (laughs) Take a sip. We about to go there. Our thoughts about the latest season of Atlanta and Donald Glover after the break. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday, and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion, and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling, and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. 
There's another show that is very different and maybe tries the hardest to feel like a deeper exploration of Blackness. Mm. That show, for me, at least right now, is Atlanta. Let me drink some of my kombucha. (laughs) Take a sip. We about to go there. You're not worried about, you know, what the streets think? The streets. (laughs) Bro, what the f***? I think you need to live more in the moment. Are you sure you want this? So, in your view about the second season, this is a quote, you said much of the horror and experiences of the characters feel urgent because they are weighted with the existential concerns of its Black audience who are trying to define themselves in a world in which reality is shifting into further surreality. So you wrote that about Mm -hmm. Atlanta's second season about four years ago. It's a while. And now the show has just wrapped its third season, which has been wildly divisive, even for this show. How are you liking the season so far? And do you think they have strayed from kind of those aims that you lauded? Yeah, it's really funny because I was like, yeah, I really dug seasons one and two. I think there's like minute issues. I do not think they have ever gotten a handle on Van Zazzy Beats' character. I'm coming to that And I think that's a tell. (laughs) And since this is coming out after the show finishes airing, I've already seen the finale, so we can kind of get into whatever. So... I think there's been an interesting push and pull with this season because its gaze has gone into a different direction. Yes, definitively. Like <sighs> I'm working on an essay about it, so I still have a lot of thoughts I'm mulling over. But one thing I think people are struggling with is that these bottle episodes are a little too mm-hmm. focused on whiteness. And here's my problem. I think it's really interesting for Black filmmakers to be like, Okay, white people, we about to come for your ass and like look at all your issues and dig into it. It's framing whiteness in Atlanta, but it's not critiquing it with any depth or nuance. I'm like, nigga, like I've had these conversations in little Twitter chats like this isn't this isn't really actually doing much. And I think especially with the bottle episodes and actually throughout the show, because we've had Chet Hanks who is not just a motherfucker who yeah. likes to put on a Trini or Jamaican accent. He's known to have abused his black girlfriend. So there's that. Liam yep. Neeson making fun of his own image and his whole line of, I'm paraphrasing, but the greatest and worst thing about being a white person is you don't have to learn if you don't want to. But then you learn that you shouldn't say shit like that. Huh. But I also learned the best and worst part about being white is we don't have to learn anything if you don't want to. Take it easy, paper boy. And there's, you know, the reparations episode. And then, and I think it's really the Chet Hanks, Liam Neeson, and then Kevin Samuels popping up in the black and white episode. Yeah. Okay, Donald Glover, you aren't probably going to listen to this, so it doesn't matter. But you have a thing for saying people don't call you out by name, so I'm calling you out by name. Nigga, what the fuck are you doing? You're insulting Black people under the guise of being a provocateur? That's not provocative. Actually, it's really lazy to give a platform to terrible people, two of whom are so misogynistic that they're enacting active material harm on black women. So people's jokes about you not liking black women, it's not a joke anymore. It's you putting money in the pockets of people who who are misogynists. Like the misogynoir, there's Kevin Samuels, terrible human being. Oh, he died. I don't give a shit, okay? If there's a hell, his black ass is sitting alongside, I don't know, Ronald Reagan and niggas like that. How about that? You can come at me for that. I don't give a shit. And so... The problem is, like, on a narrative level, it feels very disjointed because of the bottle episodes. So there's, like, layers to the issues. You're taking the characters we know out of the context of Atlanta, okay? You're putting them in the context of high-minded, beautiful, old European shit, a.k.a. white. white. You're trying to critique whiteness, but you're very obsessed with its aesthetics, which is kind of not working, And then you're not giving the characters we know much of anything to do. They really didn't do much this season Mm -hmm. or like didn't like evolve or grow. We didn't see new layers to them. It's just kind of like 
them fucking. This is a moment in time. Exactly. Yeah. And but then at the same time with the bottle episodes, they're trying to like have a message. And I'm like, you guys don't have the depth, the knowledge and the wherewithal politically to pull this off. The craft, while beautiful and glossy, is actually very inert, in my opinion. The choice of Mm. black and white in the last episode that Donald Glover directed, actually, it was basic. basic. I was like, this isn't even (laughs) interesting looking black and white. It's just like, oh, we decided to do black and white because it gives it like a Twilight Zone feel without the Twilight Zone actual aesthetics, I guess. Like... Our producer was like, somebody just watched Passing, yeah, basically. Yeah, and I'm what- like, you took the wrong lessons, my nigga. Like, the fuck are you doing? But the finale is when I was like, are y'all trolling us? Like, because this is just now. So basically, the finale focuses on Van in Paris. Mm-hmm. So we're, and you don't see Urn, you don't see Paperboy. It's just Van in, like, this little chic bobbed wig mm-hmm. walking around Paris with a fake French accent. And friends that knew her in Atlanta bump into her and they go on this very Mm. weird adventure that like basically shows that Van is like kind of unraveling in a way. I think it's trying to make fun of rich people, (laughs) but I'm like, y'all are those people. Okay. But it doesn't really give us a deeper understanding of her character because Mm. it is so wrapped up in the aesthetics of Paris and richness and wealth. Oh, also, Alexander Skarsgård pops up. It's a very weird episode. Yeah. Really? 2022 is a just a... It's been a fascinating year so far. I want to echo all... Basically, all of the shit that you said. It's, it's been so perplexing because I think I was where you were. The first season of Atlanta I really loved. I bought one of those, like, cheesy, like, watercolor prints of the Aww. key art. It's, like, in my house. But Teddy Perkins, I thought, was, like, one of the most fascinating episodes of television that like I had seen. I was like, wow, this is really they trying some shit. And then this season, it's like they forgot every Mm -hmm. lesson that they might have learned. You mentioned like taking them out of the the context of Atlanta, which was so kind of foundational, Mm -hmm. I think, to like the actual subversion that the show like excelled at because you got to see black people within context and us experiencing this surreality amongst each other. And that was like, wow. It's like, you know, it's like, great. But now you have just like, you actually, I feel like you get told more about white people than you are actually about the core uh, black people uh, in the show. I want to come back to Van and like the fact, like their kind of inability to render her. It's interesting. So like Atlanta is like one of the biggest kind of prestige black TV shows. I would say the only, probably the only other one I think comes close actually it's probably insecure actually probably being high i will say we need to let go of the word prestige that word has lost all this, fucking meaning in television i think people are saying prestige because it's like wow that looks like there's money behind it and i'm like okay we need to let go of the word because it doesn't even make sense anymore absolutely and, and that's actually what i want to ask about like i think something that is really interesting about insecure is that like for Insecure's quote-unquote prestige, I thought they were still actually really good at rendering black men, even though they weren't the focus. Oh, totally. They cared a lot more about black men than my ass be doing. <laughs> I'm saying that. No, I'm kidding. I love you guys. A couple of us, we do, we, do, we trying. A couple of us, you know. No, but they, they render them pretty beautifully. And it's interesting that Atlanta, for a similar construction of just like a core kind of group of friends, in this case, mostly male, their inability to render Van throughout the whole... It's been a running theme throughout the whole yep, it's show yeah. is kind of wild. And so I guess I'm curious, like, for you, what does prestige apply to? Like, what makes something a prestige show? How far does it have to go? I mean, I'm going to say straight up, prestige is not a word I would ever use to describe something right now. Because I think television... Well, I think... America in general is in her flop era. I mean, kind of always has been, but like she's really flopping now. And you can see it in film and television. But television, I'm trying not to say things that will piss off other like TV critics because I have spicy thoughts about shit. But if you're saying something is prestige and then that always leads to somebody saying, oh, it's cinematic, which I'm Mm -hmm. like, what the fuck does that mean? You're going to have to experiment more. You're going to have to, like, try something that I will be shocked by. Mm. You have to also have 
because prestige really does equal this show has money and I can see it on screen based on the glossy, beautiful aesthetics of the cinematography, the fact that these bitches are wearing some straight up designer ass clothing. You know mm. what I mean? Like it has a certain je ne sais quoi that is actually very white to me. Because yeah. when you think about it, it's that's what it really comes down to when people are like, oh, it's cinematic. Oh, it's it's prestige television. They're saying it has money that I can see on screen. Exactly. Yeah. And it treats its own narrative with a level of importance and an assured quality. That doesn't mean it's good, but it just, you can tell these artists are doing things. So, you know, like, yeah, Atlanta's prestige. Also, we're saying prestige because it's like, oh, white critics really love these shows mm. and they yeah. will defend them. Like, till it's kind of funny. And I'm like... You know, I have met a lot of these little white critics. They do not be having black friends, so do not give a shit about what they be saying. Let me just tell you, a lot of these major white critics do not fuck with niggas. And it shows in their work. Yeah. I was explaining to someone not too long ago, uh, one of my white friends, the concept of waiting for the black review. There was a movie coming out. He was like, has you seen it? And I was like, no, I saw people talking about it, but I'm waiting for the black review. And he was like, well, what do you just like... What do you mean? And I was like, well, a review from a black person, because it's about black people. All these reviews, I can't really trust. You know what I'm saying? I was just like, I can't, I can't engage this shit with my normal feel. I need to go with somebody who I know shares at least a little bit of the sensibility. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I mean, I know, I know people, I exist in that realm for people. They're like, okay, yeah, I'm seeing what these people are saying, but what does Angelica think about this? Because she'll actually <laughs> say what she thinks. Because also, not all these black critics are created equal. Mm. Some of y'all, I don't really fucking like and don't think you're good at your job. So <laughs> have take that as you will. But then there's other people who I'm like, for example, Shamir Ibrahim, a close yeah. friend of mine, amazing writer, Lauren Michelle Jackson. Yes. She is more doing literary criticism. Amazing writer. Mm-hmm. You know, there are, you know, actually, I think the people who are doing amazing work in cultural criticism, they're black women. It's mm-hmm. the black women who are actually like Doreen St. Felix, an amazing writer yes, as well. Yes. There's a lot of like, you know, good criticism out there coming from black people, but it's not always going to be the criticism that is highly supported, in my mm. opinion. It's weird. Like, I think there overall has been a maybe like a, a flattening of criticism with like as social has gotten bigger you know mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the amount of people who can and even access to the internet the amount of people who can become a critic has changed and mm-hmm. you know in addition to that like the way people engage with criticism i think is is a little different because mm-hmm. it, it's so like muddied but i'm curious like how do you think about the importance of criticism like it feels like maybe it's lost a step and even some of its kind of prestige in the moment we're in so for me You know, on one hand, I'm like, social media and the state we're in right now with journalism is exactly why I've been able to become a critic. I would not be able to have the career I have now 10, 20 years earlier, right? And that's great. It's great that the it's it's way more open. The problem is, too many of you niggas are moving like you're in PR, Mm. This is this is not what criticism is. This is not RuPaul's best friend race or whatever the fuck y'all think it is. Where's the scholarship? Where's the care? Where's the mm. knowledge? Where's the curiosity? I think that's really important. I don't think the prestige will be back in criticism maybe ever just because mm. the way it is now is just very different. Yeah. You know, I think people are kind of little bitches about shit, too, because <laughs> nobody wants to call anybody out by name. Yeah. We just all, like, subtweet everybody, and we move very weirdly. And I'm like, in the back-back days when, like, you know, Pauline Kale and Andrew mm. Saris disagreed with each other, they called each other out by name in their respective publications. They put it on wax. Absolutely. They, they came for each other, you know, which is, like, my energy. That's what I like <laughs> to do. And I think also one thing to keep in mind, if you're a critic, especially a Black critic, do not think that your opinion is the first of its kind. Mm. I am reading this book called Returning the Gaze that's all about Black criticism from the early 20th century into 1949. Wow. And so it's like, you wouldn't be thinking of Black critics in the 20s, 30s, and 40s 
But they were writing for black publications. And a lot of the things that we're talking about now, they were talking about then. Yeah. When my grandmother was a teenager. Like, a big problem with criticism today is, like, the lack of historical wherewithal of where mm. you fit into things. Like, for me, you know, reading Returning the Gaze had me thinking about, oh, like, I align with a lot of black critics from the 30s, for example, because they were straight up communist, Marxist. They were like not playing with Hollywood shit. Well, it's like good politics back then. It was nice. Yeah, I was like, I mean, some of the way the, the ways people were talking about, say, like Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind, they were like, oh, we coming for these white people. Oh, yeah. man, fuck this Hollywood shit. This is like, but then there was also black critics who were like, fuck, I mean, Every, what I find funny is like people describing the moment where they're like, finally, Hollywood cares about black people. I'm like, do you realize no. how many niggas have said that for decades? Yeah. They said it in the 70s with black exploitation. They were like, black exploitation is the reason Hollywood was able to not fall into the ocean, basically, and fall apart because movies weren't doing well. Yeah. Black exploitation was a way to, like, you know, cheaply made movies, making lots of money with an audience that. Had reliable, yeah. That was reliable and hadn't been like the focus for a second. And then look at how the 80s went and then 90s. Yeah. And then, you know what I mean? So it's like, we've been here before and I think that's really important to keep in mind, mm. not just as a critic, but an audience member. Yeah. We have been here before in a lot of ways. The polish is a little different. Yes, there's way more black people in front of and behind the camera right now in the halls of power of Hollywood. Mm. But I'm not sure that's actually a good thing because I don't think Hollywood can be reformed. But that's my mm. opinion. But I just I just want people to think a little deeper. <laughs> well, I think the, the, this is a part of the reason why I think projects like Maya Cade's The Black Film Archive are like so important. Because oh, totally. I think some of it comes from, and not to make excuses for folks, because it's a lot of just ignorant folks out there. But I do think a lot of that is access. access. Because if you know the films are yeah. there, you... You look for things about the films and then, you know, maybe we can like stumble on a, a bit more of that. So for what it's worth, I, I want you to continue to fight that fight because I'm more so I want to see it. I like that type of criticism. So I'm excited to see what, what else pops off in Wax. To close, though, I want to say one thank you. This has been so fun. There's actually a bunch of co uh, questions I get a chance to ask. I think of critics, a good critic, as people who can see like what was there, why it was there, and maybe most crucially, like what could have been. You know, mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm curious, like for the what could have been over the next few years, like thematically, what types of films are you hoping to see? I just want to see cool shit with hot people. That's really it. I don't ask for much. I mean, for me, w one thing that I, I've been sort of clocking and just tracking over the last few years, especially post Obama era, post Oscar, mm -hmm. so white, is how black films treat the body mm. what are the embodied aspects of filmmaking and i think sometimes people think of watching a film as a purely intellectual exercise mm. or an emotional one yeah. but one thing i really like to do as a critic is track my bodily reactions when watching a film and mm. and then like reverse engineer what in the filmmaking caused me to react this way, yeah. which is a lesson I learned watching Catherine Bigelow's film Detroit from several years ago. Fuck that movie. I, I was about to say, that was a divisive one. <laughs> yeah, I had a near panic attack in that movie. I wanted to leave. I was physically ill watching that movie. Yeah. But it taught me an important lesson. And so I just want more embodied criticism. I'm wondering, though... If I can read a quote from something, if I can find yeah, it now. please. So right now I'm reading Michael Boyce Gillespie, who is an amazing film scholar. He wrote a book called Film Blackness, American Cinema, mm. and the Idea of Black Film. And it completely challenged my ideas of how I think about black film. And I'm just going to read a few questions he poses at the very end of the book. And this is a quote. What if black film could be something other than embodied? What if black film was immaterial and bodiless? What if black film could be speculative or just ambivalent? What if film is ultimately the worst window imaginable and an even poorer mirror? What if black film is art and not the visual transcription of the black life world? That question, the last one in particular, has been very important to me. Like, 
why do I expect or even want a medium such as film to directly reflect the entirety of my life? And is that even possible? I think it's more fun to experiment, to be weird, to take these aspects of Black identity and Black living, which varies greatly throughout the diaspora, and like let it bloom into something weird and wonderful and imaginative that doesn't have to save people. I think a big reason why people turn to film so much for representation is because our political and material lives day to day are fucking terrible. Mm. And so you're hoping for progress, at least in this one small way. And I would ask people, one, please get just more politically involved and don't expect Hollywood to save you because it's not going to. Representation will not save us. No amount of times a white person sees the quote-unquote humanity of a black character on screen that's not going to save them from being racist. I'm sorry. We need to move on and expect different things from black film and challenge ourselves as viewers, as critics, and the filmmakers themselves to have more fun, be more experimental, do the weird shit, take big swings while still having care towards your Black audience. Angelica J. Bassian, thank you so much. For what it's worth, I want to I wanna see all those, too. Yeah. I want to see all that, We'll too. see. I don't know, but... <laughs> We'll see. We'll like with the, with the way niggas be. Uh, uh, these niggas out here, I don't know, honey, but I will hope. Yes. Well, thank you again so much. Seriously, I wish we had more time. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, tell folks, tell folks where they can find you and your work. So you can just find me on Vulture. I am exclusively a writer for a New York magazine. So yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Angelica Bastien. And yeah, just find me at Vulture and in the pages of New York magazine, you know, telling these hoes what they should be doing and what they ain't. Yes. I click that link every time. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by a production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams, story editor Gianna Palmer, social producer Elise Ellis, and engineer Marcus Hom. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from you so, so much. So please shout us out on Instagram at For Colored Nerds, on Twitter at For Colored Nerds. You can find us everywhere at For Colored Nerds. And tell your friends too. We love it also when we're like, yo, my homie, cousin, best friend told me to listen to this episode and it was bomb. And then I subscribed. That's like my favorite song. So please do your do your friend, do your community a favor and share an episode and tell us what you want to watch. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.